Tonight's first reading is from Psalm 95 and can be found in the Church Bibles on page 542. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord, shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, they tried me, that they had seen what I did. For forty years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Um, second reading is from the Hebrews 3, starting at verse 12. And this is at, uh, on page uh, 1101 on the Church Bible. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it really all who came out of Egypt under Moses? And who was he provoked with for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And who did he swear to that they would not enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Good day, everyone. Do you know, we, uh, I think, was that the 12th or the 13th Kids Holiday Club we've run? I'm looking at Jana, because she ran the first one. 12th? There you go, I remember the first one. And uh, we had 27 kids signed up, I think it was. And we said, we're going to not allow kindergarten kids, because that's too many kids to come. We didn't have enough leaders then. So there you go. So, uh, but now, do you know, every one of those 12 years, there's been a tradition that was broken in that video where the photographer works really hard to get a photo of me putting a donut in my mouth sometime <laughs> and then puts it on the video. And it wasn't there. I looked the whole time waiting for it, waiting for the laugh and the. Let's. Oh, there you go. And it was Sam doing something weird. No, Sam was putting a biscuit in my mouth to try and get it in. Yeah, so. Yeah, so. So there you are. So there's the history of Kids Holiday Club. Uh, it really is a highlight, but it's a highlight not just because it's fun and they show funny f- pictures of me and all that sort of thing. Uh, and by the way, if you want to come to invest, I might do something on the Saturday. You never know what I'll do on the Saturday night of invest. So if you haven't signed up, I, I just encourage you. I've got plans for this year. So um, I don't even know what we're doing. But yeah, anyway, uh, because we've had Kids Holiday Club, uh, 
this morning at our morning congregations, it was great, at each of the three, 9am here at Carlton, 10.30 at Carlton and at uh, Bexley North as well, we had lots of families come, families of the kids from Kids Holiday Club and we, so we had a, uh, a special message tied to Kids Holiday Club there which meant uh, I just got to choose what we preached on tonight. We had this gap in the program and so I picked this psalm for us to look at, Psalm 95, uh, for no real reason other than it reminds me of my dog. So there you go, that's why I picked the psalm. I was, got back from holidays last Sunday and uh, who, who's met our poodle? Gypsy, quite a lot of you. There, Hannah, how many people did you have over while we were away? Anyway, um, <laughs> Hannah was house and dog sitting for us. But uh, Gypsy is a psychopath. She, she, she's a lovable psycho dog. And uh, we've, we've tried to train her. And I, my training method is to yell really loudly at her. So my, my method is the negative method of training. So which is, you've done the wrong thing, I will yell at you and then you'll do the right thing and it doesn't work. And so Victoria says, no, no, what you do is give her lots of treats whenever she does the good things, you, you know, and, and so you've got to, it's like the carrot and the stick, you know, the two ways of training someone to do the right thing. But the problem is Gypsy discovers where the treats are and just goes and steals them. So you go <laughs> to give her a treat and she's eaten all the treats. This is the problem we have. But anyway, I look at Psalm 95, so I open up Psalm 95, and in many ways it, it's got that dilemma in it. Well, it's sort of got both those ways of motivating us as Christians. Uh, On the one hand, it's got the positive motivation, where what Psalm 95 does in verses 1 to 7 is it sets out all these positive things about God and about what he's done for us, and it invites us to respond positively to that. And so, you know, it's sort of like a word of comfort to us, where God puts his arm around our shoulder and says, I love you, I I care for you. And that's really, really important. We need those words sometimes. We need those words when we're doubting ourselves. We're doubting whether God could love us, when we have sin in our past and we doubt whether it could be forgiven or, or when we're going through a tough time and all that sort of thing. We need those words. But then it's like this sudden change happens in the psalm and he goes to the other type of motivation, which is frankly fear, uh, where he says... Be very careful that you do not reject the living God. So there's the positive motivation in one part of the psalm and then there's this negative, really fear-based motivation in the last couple of verses of the psalm. Uh, And that's because neither is right or wrong. I think my yelling at Gypsy is probably wrong and unhelpful. But in terms of the way God relates to us, both of those are necessary at times. Sometimes we need a word of comfort. Sometimes we need a, a slap in the back of the head from God, to put it very frankly. Sometimes we need to be confronted by the reality of our sin and challenged when our hearts are hard to God's word. So that's what this psalm does, does both of those things to us. So come with me, let's uh, have a look at it. And we're going to start in verses 1 to 7, which is the word of comfort and the word of joy. Uh, Historically, by the way, Anglican Christians knew this psalm better than any other part of the Bible. Do you know that? When, when uh, we, don't, we haven't used a prayer book here at 6.30 Church since before we met at 6.30, but in, in the old Book of Common Prayer, which uh, Thomas Cramner came up with, if, you, if you're now ignoring me if you don't know anything about history, but anyway, in the 1500s, uh, they had this psalm was read every day in church as part of morning prayer. 
this psalm. So it's a, uh, for Anglicans in the old traditions, they knew this psalm off by heart. Anyway, we're going to look at it now. I hope you might learn it off by heart afterwards. So you find three comforts or three encouragements in the first seven verses. And the first is that God is our saviour. And that's really the main point of the psalm. So look with me at verses 1 and 2. He says, Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. God is the rock of our salvation. Uh, That's an incredibly common image in the Bible. You can't read very far in the Bible without getting this, this metaphor that God is the rock. Not the actor who's now the highest paid actor in the world, apparently, but God, it means much more, something much more important than that. The point is, everything else in your life can be moved. Everything else you might trust in is in the end unreliable, but God is totally immovable. God is totally reliable. His salvation stands forever. That's the point it's making. Jesus picked up on that image. You know, remember when Jesus told the parable, where don't build your house on the... Sandy land. That's the old song I remember singing in kids' church. But don't build your house on the sand, build it on the rock. And he wasn't talking about building foundations, he was talking about your life. He was saying, if you trust in anything else, if you base your life on anything else, when the storms come, it'll be wiped away. So build your house on me, that is Jesus. He is the rock of our salvation. So if we seek salvation in the rock, if we cling to the rock, that is God, our salvation is certain. It is immovable. For the Old Testament believers who first read this psalm, they looked back to God saving them out of slavery in Egypt. That was the big moment where they remembered God's salvation, where God was the rock. Or perhaps at the time of David, they looked back to David saving them from the Philistines in God's name. But for us, New Testament believers, the salvation we look back on is even more immovable, it's even more rock-like, it's the salvation we have received through the death of Jesus. That's what we look back to. If we cling to that by faith, then we can know for certain that our salvation is secure, that we have been forgiven by God. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever take us from his hand. So that's the first encouragement of Psalm 95, God is the rock of our salvation. The second word of encouragement is that God is in control. So let's look at verses 3 to 5. Look at them with me. It says, For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand, and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. The point he's making is there is no one greater than God. Wherever you are in the world whether you're out in the middle of the ocean or whether you're up on a mountain or whether you're here in this church building, God made it all and it's all in God's hands and God is in control of it all. We can be tempted to think that's not the case. I mean, just look at the awful things that have happened in the world this week, just in the last seven days, you know, in France and in other places all around the world. We can be tempted to look at our world and we see wars and famines and terrorists and awful things happening to other people or to ourselves, and we can be tempted to think God is not in control. Maybe things are out of control. Or in our own life, as you know, if you go through a time of trial, if you struggle with illness or losing your job or whatever it is, we might be tempted to think God is not in control. If you're never tempted to think that, by the way, can you come and talk to me afterwards? Because I'd love to know how you're never tempted to think that. 
You must have immovable faith. It's incredible. Most, all of us, it's not abnormal to doubt at times and to think maybe God isn't in control of all of this. But we're reminded here that whatever happens in our experience, the reality is that God is in control. Nothing happens in the world and nothing happens to you that he is not aware of. Remember Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 10? Look at your outline. I've printed them on there. Take it out. Have a look. Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus is saying God is in control of the biggest things and he is in control of the smallest things. He cares about the smallest details of your life and that is an incredible comfort. Whatever happens, God is in control. And the third encouragement from Psalm 95 is related to that and it's this. It's that that God who is in control of all things is not distant He's not some God who's up there in the clouds and doesn't care about the people down here. More than that, God has decided that he is your God. Understand just how incredible this is. This is this third word of comfort. The God who is in control of all things is our God. That is, we are his people. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Does that remind you of another psalm? The 23rd psalm, the most famous psalm of all, the Lord is my shepherd. See, the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord cares for us. We are like his flock. And he oversees us. He feeds us. He looks after us. We are under his care. And as New Testament believers, we know that even more wonderfully. And even more profoundly than these people did, God gives us salvation in Jesus and Jesus is our great shepherd, the New Testament says. He sends his Holy Spirit into us and enables us to live for him. He cares for us. He feeds us by his word. That's what he does. He looks after us in incredible ways. God is in control and he is looking after you and he is working for our good because he is our God if we trust in Jesus. The point of those first seven verses is to encourage you, is to comfort you. And as the psalm rightly points out, those words should create a response in us. That's what they're meant to do. If we know this God, he says, then this is what you'll do. And it's rolled through the psalm. Look through it again. Look at verse 1. Knowing those things should make us shout joyfully to the Lord. Or, verse 2, they should make us enter his presence with thanksgiving, shout triumphantly to him in song. Or, verse 6, worship and bow down, kneel before the Lord our Maker. See, singing and shouting and thanksgiving and joy, bowing down, worshipping, kneeling, they are the responses that the person who understands those things about God makes. That is the right response For anyone who understands what this psalm is saying, if we know that God is the rock of our salvation, if we know that he is the God of all our comfort, if he is our God and we are the sheep of his pasture, it will just flow out of us. We won't be able to help but declare his praises to him, to each other and to our world. So that's the first half of the psalm. But then the second half is very different. 
See, we should be encouraged to do those things, but sometimes our hearts are hard, aren't they? Sometimes we are cold to God's word. Sometimes we don't want to listen. Sometimes we don't want to believe these things. So sometimes we need a different word to verses 1 to 7, and that word starts at the end of verse 7 there. So look with me. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massah in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. Now what's it talking about there? None of us were at Massah or Meribah. If you like, you can go home and read about it tonight in Exodus 17 or in Numbers chapter 20. God had brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He'd done this incredible thing where he had judged the Egyptians and then he brought the Israelites out and he provided for them and he cared for them. And then what did they do? They grumbled about it. And they said, oh, have you just brought us out into the desert to die? I'd rather be back as a slave in Egypt where they whipped us and did all those horrible things to us. So God says, well, I love you. So, so he sends them manna from heaven, which is food they didn't even have to make. They just walked out of their tents and there it was on the floor and it tasted like honey, bread that tasted like honey. And still they grumbled. They said, oh, we've got to eat bread. I mean, seriously. So he sent them some quails to eat, which I think was intentional. They're the smallest, easiest birds to catch, you know, it, And again, they were just there. They didn't even have to farm them. They didn't have to look after them. They didn't have to do anything. They just had to trust God, walk outside their tents and collect enough quails to eat. I think they had to cook them. That's all they had to do. But still they grumbled and still they complained. So they turned on Moses, who God had placed over them. And they said, we don't have enough water, Moses. Are we going to die of thirst? So they threatened to stone Moses. And then once again, what does God do? He provides water for them out of a stone and he feeds them and he gives them water. But still they just kept grumbling and kept complaining. And what made it worse was this was the people who had seen the most incredible miracles in the history of the world. See, if you, you might be tempted, you might be sort of excused grumbling if you've never seen anyone do anything good for you. But they'd seen it. This was the generation who had seen all the plagues he sent on Egypt. They were there in Egypt when the locusts came in and, you know, when all the frogs and when the water turned to blood and when the firstborn children of Egypt died, all these horrible plagues, they'd seen it and they had seen God spare them while he judged the Egyptians. And then they got to the Red Sea with the Egyptians on their tail and what had happened? The Red Sea had parted. And God had let them go through as on dry land. Then they turned around and God had brought it back in over the Egyptians. They had seen all of that. They had seen God go before them as a cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night. So they they couldn't have the excuse of, oh, we don't know this God you're talking about. And they grumbled and complained even while God was providing for them even while God was caring for them. Yet despite all that, they hardened their hearts to God and his word. They kept testing God. They kept trying God. And God judged them for it. It's a horrible part of the Old Testament. Every one of that generation, including Moses, never got to get into the promised land. What the Bible calls God's rest, God's Sabbath. That blessing was kept from them And it was given to the next generation instead. 
Why did that happen? What was their sin? Hard hearts. That was their sin. Unbelief. Not trusting God. That was their sin. Now that is a great lesson from history about sin. But Psalm 95 was written hundreds of years after that. And it says, make sure that you do not make the same mistake. Make sure that you do not harden your hearts to God and his word. Right now, today, when you hear the word of God, like you're hearing tonight, right now, do not make the same mistake as they made or you might miss out on God's eternal rest, that is heaven. If you turn to the New Testament, come now to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, that's where we're going to go now. Hebrews says, this is still a word of warning to us today. So go to chapter 3. If you look with me from verse uh, 7, you can see there from verse 7 to 11, he basically quotes all of this second half of the psalm. That's why I only got Eddie to read out from verse 12, because uh, I didn't want him reading it again after Tom had just read all of Psalm 95 a minute ago. But what he does is he, he writes out this whole psalm, psalm, the second half of Psalm 95, and then he applies it to us. At verse 12. So look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Watch out, brothers and sisters, watch out, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. Sometimes people say to me, Why does God take sin seriously? We're not all sinners, are we? And that's you know what the Bible says. The Bible says the most evil thing you can do is disbelieve God. The most evil thing you can do is not believe in the God who made you and loved you. And so he says here, watch out. And he's talking to Christians. Watch out so that there may not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But verse 13, instead encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. I hope you see the point he's making. I think there are three very, very important verses of Scripture. He's saying, do not fall into the trap of the Israelites. You have heard about the wonderful love of God in Jesus. Do not fall into the trap of failing to believe. We must continue on in our faith, continue to believe in God and in his promises. Because just like the Israelites in the desert missed out on God's rest, the promised land, well in the same way today, people with unbelieving hearts will miss out on God's eternal rest, what we call heaven, because they do not believe. Just look at now the next part of Hebrews. Turn over, come to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Just look at verses 1 and 2 with me. He says, Therefore, while the promise to enter his rest remains, let us fear that none of you should miss it. For we also have received the good news, just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. How do you make sure that you have a place in God's eternal rest? 
How do you make sure you have a place in heaven? By hearing the word of God and responding to it in faith and then keeping believing. That's how you make sure. Continuing in that faith. This is a somber warning. It's saying, you here who sit in church and hear the word of God preached week in, week out, make sure you're not like them. Make sure you are in heaven because you believe it and keep believing it. The book of Hebrews makes it very clear. Psalm 95 is a warning to us today. We must not doubt God's promises. We must not harden our hearts to God and his word. Eternal life is available to anyone who believes in Jesus. It's the most wonderful promise in all of history. But for those who harden their hearts to his word, what does it say at the end of the psalm? So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. And more than that, what Hebrews reminds us is, we have to keep encouraging each other. That's what Hebrews says, encourage one another. We're not just responsible for ourselves, We are responsible for our brothers and sisters to spur each other on in faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 again. He says, But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. So he's saying you cannot be happy to just hear the warning of Psalm 95 and then just apply it to yourself. Just say, yeah, I'll take that warning to heart. He says, no, 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 no. You look out for these people sitting around you too. One of the saddest things in modern Christianity, I think, is the individualism of the modern Christian. What this says is, daily encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. In in days of old, when they read out that old Book of Common Prayer I talked about before and they read Psalm 95, Christians met together every day. They'd go to church in the morning before they went to work. And then they'd come to church at night before they went home again. We don't do that in the modern world, but we can encourage one another daily in so many ways. We do it when we meet together. We do it with a phone call. We do it, as much as I hate it, on the line. But, you know, we do it in all sorts of different ways. We can encourage one another daily. That's what this calls on us to do. It envisages us being a community that is so connected to one another that when we see one of our brothers or sisters hardening their heart to God and his word, we are there ready to encourage them and sometimes to rebuke them and challenge them. And we're able to gently do that in the context of this ongoing relationship. Well, that's Psalm 95, a word of great encouragement, first of all, to us all, but also a word of warning. And it's up to you how you respond. You see, we can take God's word to heart And we can sing for joy. I'm sure we're going to sing a song in a minute. We can sing for joy. We can praise his name. We can kneel down and worship him. We can declare his praises. And we can know the certain hope that we have of entering his eternal rest, heaven. Or we can harden our hearts and persist in unbelief. But if we do, hear the warning that it gives us that we will never enter his rest. And I don't know which word you need to hear. Every person here might need a bit of both. Some might need one, some might need another. I don't know what you need to hear. But I'm going to pray now that we would respond as we should to this part of God's word. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that we will never forget how wonderful you are and how amazing is your salvation. Father, remind us daily 
that you are the rock of our salvation, that you are the God of all comfort, and that you are our God, and we are the sheep of your pasture. Father, though, help us not to harden our hearts 